Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dear Writer. Today, we are recording episode 144, and it's another one of our Author Spotlight series. And today, we have Perry Patterson on the show. So welcome, Perry. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Perry is an Atlanta-based author. While her five published novels feature romance as the primary genre, she also crosses into other categories within her writing, including historical fiction, young adult, and new adult genres. In her day-to-day life, Perry and her husband Jeff have raised two grown children. Although they have flown the nest, Perry keeps herself busy. She's a keen volunteer at a number of different societies and groups in her community and is the host of the Talking Atlanta podcast. Perry's goals are to write intriguing stories, the type of story you can't put down, ones which seem to take on a life of their own, with stories that crawl off the pages and into your heart. So welcome to the show, Perry. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. How we like to get started with these episodes is if you can tell us a little bit about your writing journey, how it first got started, and when you decided to pursue writing more seriously and began thinking about getting your book published? Well, you know, it was never actually on my bucket list to write a novel. And now I've actually written six of those. But (laughs) I'll tell you how it got started and how the idea came about. And it was really kind of a time of reflection for me, because as my children got older, my um, thought had been that I was going to open my own clothing boutique store because while in college at the University of Alabama, I was a fashion merchandising major. And so it was always my idea to open a boutique store and kind of be have a store that was like being a kind of a person who helps people with like their outfits. If they call up and say, hey, I have an event, don't know what to wear tonight, no problem. I've got you covered. I'll put your outfit together, accessorize it, drop it off at your house. You can try things on at home. Whatever you don't choose, we'll credit back to your account. Kind of like having an online store, but a physical store also to go to Mm -hmm. and kind of that special person that, that kind of is able to assist you in a more personal way. But the more I thought about that, and that was back in probably May of 2017, the more I thought about having that physical store, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not really sure that's really what I want to do. Of course, I didn't know about COVID or, you know, what was going to happen a few years later, but I just kind of didn't feel like that was what I wanted to put all my energy into, even though my kids were at the age where I could do that. So what I said to myself was, okay, Perry, if you could do anything you want to do, what would that be? And I was really honest with myself. And I said, you know, write novels. And I'll tell you why. Because I was such an avid reader. And I read anything. I'm in several book clubs. I read anything. But my reading journey started when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I read Everything I Could by Judy Bloom. (laughs) And I read everything but more than once. And so I tell you what, because of Judy Bloom, I can say 
I fell in love with reading and it continued through the rest of, you know, my life. So I always kind of felt like writers were almost like rock stars to me. The the ability to put a character in a story and bring that story to life and bring those characters to life were something that I felt was not only hard to do, but maybe something that was a unique ability. And I really enjoy diving into a book where I feel like I want to crawl into the pages and live there. And so that's one of the reasons why I loved reading so much. But when I answered the question, what would I really want to do if I could do anything? And I said, oh, be a writer. I also laughed at myself because I thought, well, that's ridiculous. You know nothing about this. Well, a few days later, I had a really weird dream. It involved JFK Jr., his wife, his assistant, an assassination attempt, and a secret baby. I wrote all the details of that dream down, and I went, oh my gosh, that's it. A college sophomore is moving into her sorority house with her best friend. She has to take a class, a writing class, and she has to write a paper. So the paper ends up becoming that dream. So it's a little bit like Mazayambi or Story Within a Story. But the guy that she trips over on that first day in that creative writing journalism class has something to do with the story that she writes, but you don't find out about what that is until the very end of the book. So Walking the Crimson Road was born. Now, did I know what I was doing? Of course I didn't. But after working on the book, I kind of sat on it for a while, not knowing what to do. I did query some agents and I joined the Atlanta Writers Club and things like that. But what I did was I found like Facebook groups and writers groups that on Facebook that I could like read the information about what these other writers and what these other people were doing. And I found it interesting that people were making a lot of money by putting their novels on Amazon. And I thought, well, maybe I should try this. And I did. And and that was in December, I believe it was like officially December 22nd of 2019. And from that point on, I had the bug and I wanted to write something else. And I was watching a Netflix documentary on, on competition cheerleading. And my daughter was a competition cheerleader for many years. And this particular documentary blew up. I mean, they were on the Ellen show. They were just, the Kardashians were talking about them. Just all these people were focusing on this particular cheerleading competition show from Netflix and were becoming obsessed. And and as a cheer, former cheer mom, I was like, there's a story here. And I wrote Hit Zero in about two months. And that's a young adult story because the main character starts off when you meet her, she's 17. And I, so I wrote it for a very young teen you know, you're 13, 14, 15 year olds, but it's set to the background of competition cheerleading and it is a young adult sports romance. From there, I went back to the Crimson series because I had written the Crimson Road, Walking the Crimson Road, and I took the characters to a little bit different level where I wrote My Blood Runs Crimson and All the Crimson Roses, but I wrote those in three character points of view And because two of those characters are male and one of the characters is the female from the point of view of Walking the Crimson Road, she's the main character in that book. So there's two male and one female. I changed it up a little bit to where it's a little bit more spicy and there's language in it because Walking the Crimson Road and My Blood Runs Crimson and All the Crimson Road, those are set at the University of Alabama, and those are new adult romance. So you've got these two male characters and the way that they are going to be communicating with themselves. I mean, there's going to be a lot of F-bombs dropped. Mm -hmm. So I would say those two books that 
my blood runs crimson all the crimson roses and because there's a few spicy scenes those are best suited for 18 and up mm-hmm. and then i wrote a historical fiction just to throw that in there <laughs> based on the life of a all the people that are Amazing. in the historical fiction were real people and it's said during the 18th century during the american revolution I got involved in, well, there's an ancestry group for those who had ancestors that fought in the American Revolution called the DAR, and it's um, National Society of Daughters of the American Revolution. This particular organization, although ancestry-based, was founded by four women in 1890 as a service volunteer organization that is non-political, and we stress that, we can't stress that enough, non-political, but what we focus on is education historical preservation and service to military and veterans. So basically kind of like God, home and country. And through that group, I got very involved with learning about American history, learning about my own ancestors who helped found uh, the state of New Jersey. And also we have a book club called, well, it's just a history. It's like a, a book club with within my chapter that we basically just kind of read mostly nonfiction American history or, or historical fiction. And we were reading a book called 355 Women in Washington Inspiring by Kit Sargent. And at the same time, I was watching a TV show that used to be on AMC called Turn. And that is about the Culper Spiring and Washington Spies. And that show was on AMC for a while. And then it was on Netflix And I started watching it when it was on Netflix at the same time I'm reading 355 by Kit Sargent. And I fell in love with the story of these spies and they took their identities to their graves. I mean, they did not tell, they didn't want George Washington to know who they were. They literally, their lives were in danger because the British were certainly after anybody who was committing treason at the time. And their lives were in danger. So they had to keep it secret. So basically I based the book Leader of Liberty, Tale of America's First Firing on Benjamin Talmadge, who was a second continental dragoon commander, but he was also the espionage leader for the Culper Firing. So all of the people that are in this book and one of the slaves that is a focused character in the book they were all real people. So I do put a little bit uh, like a mini bio in the back of who they were. And I like to tell people, don't go to the back and read the mini bios first. Read the story, start with the first chapter and fall in love with this little feisty nine-year-old girl and follow along with the story of what's happening in 1769 through March of 1783 and learn about these things. You learn a lot more about uh, Benedict Arnold and what he, what his treason was and what his treachery was than you would ever learn in a, in a history class um, Mm -hmm. reading this particular book that I wrote. So I went to New York many times on research trips in Connecticut also to do research. And so I would drag my husband along with me. We've got to go. We've got to go do these, uh, these trips. (laughs) And he's just, you know, whatever, okay. But that's one of the things that that having kids that have recently graduated from college or, you know, seniors in college now allows us to do is that trips and research for these books that I've written. And it's become, I guess, a fun, it's become a fun hobby, but it's also something that, you know, I really enjoy doing 
And I think that with the learning process that went with my first book to my, I just finished writing my six, which is called The Tulip Tea, 24 Hours in NYC. It's um, a book that's set between Atlanta and New York. And it's about a female journalist who works for a magazine called Beyond. And they only feature women as subjects in the magazine. And she gets an opportunity to go and interview a woman who was running for governor of New York in this book, but she also runs into a former crush that she had in high school who's running PR for the event. I tried to make it a little bit funny. (laughs) So it's kind of a light read, you know, as far as like, well, I wouldn't say it's a light read, but it's definitely got a little bit of a feminism touch to it as far as like the story and, and, and some of the things that are in it. And I'm, and it's, it's a almost finished with first round edits because, you know, once you get your first draft down, it's kind of like, okay, I got it down on the page and let my betas read it, give me their opinions. And then it goes to my editing, my editor. And then my editor really kind of, you know, takes it apart and like really gives me, you know, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, you know ideas and changes that need to be made. So first round edits are almost done, but it'll go through second round edits before it goes to um, the next step, which would be formatting and then proofreading. Getting closer. How exciting. Yeah. And I probably just told you so much information that you're just like, okay, that was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot, but I've got two comments. First comment, I hadn't heard the name Judy Bloom in so long. I'd like forgotten she existed, but one of my sisters used to be like, just like you devouring everything she'd ever written. But I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Yes. And there is a wonderful documentary. I believe it's on Netflix that is about Judy Bloom. Okay. And I definitely encourage you to watch it. It is fantastic. Yeah, she is wonderful. She actually now owns a bookstore and lives in Key West, Florida. Oh, wonderful. and just one more thing. <laughs> the latest book that I wrote, The Tulip Tea, I dedicated it to Judy Bloom. Oh, oh, that's really cool. I like the idea of dedicating to like a figure that you've aspired to that kind of started you off on your writing journey. That's really cool. I thought it was really interesting just how you were so honest with yourself, like when you were kind of looking at what you wanted to do and you were like, okay, sure, you know, like I've I've got this background, this is what I have studied, Mm -hmm. but you didn't feel like constrained by that. And because I feel like a lot of people feel really pressured to go into what they've got experience in and what they've sort of got behind them. And to be really honest and say, you know what, I think this would bring me joy and then go for it. Like that takes a lot of guts and it it takes, I think, a lot of mindfulness to actually recognize that too. Yeah. And I was, I mean, when I, when I was really trying to process what my next step was going to be with my kids getting older and let me move into a different phase of life, when I was really honest with myself and said, I want to write novels. I knew in my heart that it's like, you've never done this before. You're not going to be able to do it. It's what it felt like. But then when I had that really weird dream, I was like, 
holy crap. And then I just all of a sudden turn it into this story where this girl is literally having to take a class and with a famous author that she takes the class in her and having to write the story. And then later it becomes a story. And then she trips over this guy that has something to do with the story. You don't find out about it later. I don't know. It just drew me in. And I wrote what I guess I thought I wanted to live out this kind of fantasy type world if I were going back to college and I could make up a fantasy world of being this particular person and living out this particular type of story, I kind of played on it that way. It's fantasy because it's romance and there's a lot of romanticism, you know, involved with romance stories. And then you have your HEA, your happily ever after. But then I kind of took a different turn with my next two books and made them a little bit more gritty, I guess you could say. I feel like you get that with the the male sort of protagonists a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but certainly some personalities, it's very it would be very hard to avoid mm-hmm. like certain languages. Like we find yeah, that with well, our book I mean, even to an extent. And I think that's the thing. You want your characters to speak the way that they're going to talk to each other Mm -hmm. in normal situations or normal life. And these are college kids. And because I graduated from the University of Alabama, I kind of know that lifestyle. And there's a secret society. If if anybody's on Bama Rush TikTok, and I don't know if you are, but it's kind of going on right now. It's kind of a big deal. And then there's a woman who did a documentary on it, um, Rachel Fleet. Um, on Max. It used to be HBO, but now it's called Max. And they put out a documentary on Bama Rush, uh, TikTok and why it blew up so much. But the documentary wasn't really what Bama Rush was about. But there is a secret society within the university called The Machine. And The Machine is made up of different Greek houses or original Greek houses or members that are secretive to these original. You don't know who the members are in this machine, but they control politics on campus and things like that. So my, my book kind of does a little deep dive into who they are, but I make them a lot more sinister than they really are in real life. I have them hooded and cloaked and like chanting <laughs> in Latin and doing all these secret ceremonies that are in the dark and out in the woods with candles and all this kind of stuff. So I kind of make them a little bit more sinister, but I definitely put them in the story because it is part of, of the, the background of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you find jumping from your Crimson Road series and your YA into the historical fiction? Cause we've done the jump as well into historical fiction and it's a little bit challenging sometimes well I became a little bit obsessed with the cold perspiring and through watching the AMC TV series turn and through watching that I tell you what the character or the actor Seth Numerick who plays Benjamin Talmadge in the series he's very good looking okay (laughs) so I couldn't take my eyes off of him while watching And I became obsessed with the ideas of spies within the revolution and and how they were getting their messages across because 355 is the code word for lady. So when I was talking about Kit Sargent's book, 355, Women in Washington Spy Ring, that is a historical fiction based on the Culpa Ring too. But the 355 is the code number 
that Benjamin Talmadge used for the word lady. So when you think about the word lady in the 18th century, it's going to mean something very specific, probably someone who's very well off, someone who's maybe got a prominent position in society or something like that. So when you think of that word lady in 18th century, and when the Culper members are using that 355 in their secret messages, because there is one that Abraham Woodhull, who codename is Culper, Samuel Culper in the spy ring, he says in this note, with the help of a 355, she will surely be able to outwit them all. Now, after two almost 250 years later, no one knows who that 355 was. And because I did so much research and because I was so obsessed, and I think it had to do with just being in the DAR, being in that book club, and I was taking something called the members course, which is kind of like DAR 101. You have to do a project in order to graduate from this course. And my project was, guess what? The Culper Spiring. <laughs> so then I was able to present the the program that I put together and my PowerPoint program to other chapters who wanted to learn about this history. And, and I kind of almost jokingly said, you know what, I should write us, I should write a historical fiction about Benjamin Talmadge. But it also stemmed just because I had a little bit of a crush on Stephanie Numeric. <laughs> and if you <laughs> doesn't have he doesn't have an Instagram. I'd totally be stalking him if he had one, but he doesn't have one. But I tell you what, if you are a fan of Stephen King and you enjoy his books, Seth Numeric does the audio version of a book called The Fairy Tale or Fairy Tale by Stephen King. And he does the most incredible job with that book as far as like reading the characters and changing his voice. And I think he won an award for doing the audio version as an actor for the fairy tale by Stephen King for the audible audible version. It's a very good book. And I listened to it on audible as I was driving around and I just was like, and I got the book on audible since because it was narrated by Seth Numeric. <laughs> a real obsession so anyway it just it was you know I think the things that are you're passionate about the things that you and because I had so much information in my head after doing this project and this research and then presenting it to these other chapters I had so much information in my head and then I went on more tours I went to Setauk at Long Island and I did the tri-spy tours where the where the Culper members lived where they were you know and I took an individual tour of all these locations. And it brought that story more to life where I could see where they had been. I could walk into the church where Benjamin Talmadge's father had been the minister and where the British had taken it over and ripped out all the pews and put their horses in and made it into a barn and a stable. I was there. I walked those streets and it, it just made it more meaningful, I think. So it yeah. was just, I, it was, it was really good. And I, put a little twist on who I think 355 is in the story. <laughs> I had to do it. And because I write romance, I had to put romance in the, in the book too. But it's all, like I said, it's based on real people. These are real events, real people. And so I, I had to make up obviously some, some things mm -hmm. to get the story going. And I kind of wanted it to be almost like a, a history, a little bit because I wanted people to be able to see what was happening in history 
but through events and conversations and the, in the way they interacted with, with everyone else. Yeah. I think we've had that experience. Some sometimes you want to be able to provide that overall sort of perspective of everything that's going on in that time era, but you also want to be able to do it naturally in a way like not every character that you're writing from is going to be able to see the whole big picture. And so sometimes you need to manipulate things through like conversations or things like that. Right. And connect the dots is kind of the the yeah. fun of historical fiction, I think. <laughs> it's like what goes on in between these two like very bland details of history and how can <laughs> exactly. I make that come to life? But yeah, yeah and, and it was an interesting time. There was a lot of women in the background. There was this person named Molly Pitcher, and it wasn't based on, it was based on a real person, but not really the name Molly Pitcher. But they were the women who would go out to the battlefield and they would cool down the cannons because you couldn't fire the cannon continuously. It would be too hot and they had to cool it down with water. And one of those women that was out there on the battlefield, her husband was running the cannon, operating it, but got shot and killed. She's took up and started firing the cannon herself. So there, we just finished reading a book called Revolutionary Mothers. And I believe that book is by Carol Birkin. And she is a professor of history. I want to say at Columbia University in New York. Um, I think she's 80, but she's written about maybe eight nonfiction books. That's a really interesting book about the, the women that were involved and the different things that they did. Various women throughout the 13 colonies the 13 original colonies that, that were involved in the American revolution and women that were dressed as men, they actually hid their identities and, and, and signed up. And one of them was Deborah Sampson and Deborah Sampson's identity as a female was not found out until she got very, very ill and was in the hospital but because she had hidden our identity for so long and was in battle and I think even rescued someone, she was actually given a pension. Oh, that's cool. These are things I know you guys are not American, so you're probably like, well, okay. Interesting. Probably the most like American revolution history that I know comes from like Diana Campbell's yeah, series. Me too. <laughs> Okay, okay. But, you know, like, I mean, like, that's the, the beauty of historical fiction is that if, even if you're not like someone who yeah. reads nonfiction, you can still learn some interesting facts and stuff, like even about like other countries and different places through right. historical fiction, which is what I love about it. Right. And I have seen the series, the Outlander series. I have not read the books, but they are on my list. You know how the TBR list is. Yes. Well, it's and they are, yeah. they and are those series are like not to be undertaken lightly, those books. <laughs> the, I have not gone through the most recent one. I like started it when I was pregnant with my my daughter and then she was born and that was the end of that. <laughs> it went back to the library. <laughs> I've gone as far as purchasing it. Well, I find that it's just very relaxing at night. I tend to read on Kindle in the dark in bed at night because I find it to be the most relaxing way to fall asleep. So I'm not usually reading during the middle of the day. It's more of a kind of like just kind of my wind down time mm -hmm. usually, mm -hmm. unless yeah. I'm sitting on the beach on vacation or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it sounds like 
from what I've gathered from what you've told us so far that often when you start writing your books you have a fair idea where they're going so I was a bit curious about your writing process whether you tend to be more on the plotting side or pantsing side so how does that look so I usually have an idea where I want the book to start and I usually have maybe an idea of how I want it to end But sometimes those things that happen in the middle, you don't know until you really get started writing. And one of the things that I find very helpful is to play out the scenes like a movie in my head. And I will manipulate the scene in my head. And that might happen while I'm trying to fall asleep at night where I'm just like picturing the characters in my mind and I'm trying to see where they are and what the scene is about and what's happening. And as I'm trying to fall asleep, I'll manipulate the characters and what they're doing, what they're saying. How do I want this scene to play out? And I might do it over and over and over in my mind until I feel comfortable with putting that down on the page. But it's also something that sometimes as you're writing, things will come to you and then you'll move in that direction. So you don't always know you have an idea. And and I try to take notes and write down, okay, I've got this character and she's related to this person. And I try to keep a journal and a, a notes on who I've got and where I want it to go and what I want to happen next. And I might write all of those down. So then as I'm writing, I can refer to my notes and go, Okay, what needs to happen next? Okay, I've written down these, these, this, and this. Okay, all right, how am I going to get those things incorporated into the story? And then does it take me sitting there, you know, kind of like playing it out like a movie in my head to kind of feel it out? Sometimes it does. We always find it so interesting hearing people's, you know, approaches to writing novels. Sounds like you're somewhere in between, yeah, a little bit in between. There's always such, like, even in in the in-between space, you know, like a lot of people fall in that in-between plotting and pantsing, but there's just so such variety in the way that people actually end up sort of getting things from their mind to the page that it's really fascinating. <laughs> I have also been doing a lot of, like, the picturing it, like, before writing lately. I've been like, okay, okay, what does this look like? And I'm as always am getting stuck in the transitions is the part that I find the hardest where you've got the character from one point and you're like, I've got to get them to that point. And it's like this murky middle, but I think <laughs> that's been helping. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it'll help if you are writing about a specific location to physically go there, because yeah. I think that definitely helps to get the vibe and the feel and really kind of, put yourself in that position, in that place, and then be able to to write about it. You know what this means, Sarah? We have to go on holiday to Greece together, obviously. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Leave the babies at home. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. We'll be back in a month. <laughs> yeah, my husband went to Greece on business a few months ago. And of course, he's like, I don't think I can take you on this particular business trip, but maybe next time. Oh. So, yeah, but he travels quite a bit. And he used to travel quite a lot, like for a while. He was even diamond on Delta for a while. Not nice. anymore. I mean, he de- he lost all that. He doesn't uh, travel quite as much anymore. And for a year and a half, he worked from home. So 
Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people have gotten into the the working from home and and not really like come out of the working from home as well, which has its benefits and its its downfalls. And see like people getting a bit more isolated these days, but it is good though, like being able to sort of roll out of bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and when I'm working on a book, because I'm so task oriented, I'll start maybe at 9 a.m. And if things are going well, you know, I won't, I may not stop until four or five. But that's one thing I try to push myself. And it's like, even if it's only an hour that I sit down and write, I'm, I've got to get, you know, that in because you want to keep that story fresh in your mind. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to go yep. too many days without sitting down and working on it or even rereading what you've written. Yeah. So first you have to hash over it again and then to be able to get into the headspace is a lot harder for sure. So you said you caught the publishing bug earlier when you first put your um, The Crimson Road on Amazon. How did that go for you in terms, was it a, very much like a learning process doing the self-publishing route or did you do a lot of studying up on how to self-publish beforehand? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, found some writer Facebook pages and I looked at their comments and everything first, but it was definitely a learning process. And since then I've put, well, everything I have is on Amazon. So all five of my novels that are out are on Amazon, but then I've also added um, a few books to Barnes and Noble because I feel like they do a very good job with the hardbound, with the traditional dust jacket cover. I really like mm-hmm. the way that they do that. So a few of my books are on Barnes and Noble. And then of course, a couple of them, my latest two, All the Crimson Roses and Leader of Liberty, Tale of America's First Firing, those are available through Ingram Spark. So that means that any local independent bookstore can order those. Yeah. But it's a very, it can be a very daunting process, especially for someone who's not very technical as far as like learning technology and like how to format. So I happen to use my husband for those technical things. (laughs) (laughs) I have him help and he, and he does a great job with helping. So you, I have him in my corner helping me with that. But I, I like the fact that I can work with an editor that I enjoy working with. I've, I've worked with her, uh, not necessarily on my first book, but I think she came in on my second and the other ones. Um, and she's very, I feel like she's very knowledgeable and does a really good job with pointing things out to me. And she's a ghostwriter too. So she's, she's very helpful. I think it's, it's, it's helpful to have a good editor. And I think that, you know, just through writing my first book and writing my fifth, you can see a huge difference. I've grown, you know, I've mm-hmm. matured, I've learned a lot. I, I you know, cause my first book is just okay. I mean, it's okay, but it, it might get better toward the end, but it's not great. I wouldn't say it's great. My two best books are my two latest books, yeah. all the Crimson Roses and Leader of Liberty are for sure. And then the sixth one that's coming out, I think is from what my editor has said, she says she likes it because it's very fast paced and it moves quickly and she's enjoying the story and the characters So I think that when you do something, it's just like with anything, the more you practice, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Yeah, for sure. 
So we've touched on your most recent book, Leader of Liberty, a few times uh, so far. Would you like to give us a little bit more of a rundown about it? So that's Leader of Here Liberty. Here is kind of a picture of the cover. I don't Ooh. know if you can see that or not. Yeah, that's really cool. Just for our audience, <laughs> then it's got like a, is it that a scroll that says join or die? This is a flag that says join or die, flag, and it sorry. is a snake in different segments, and each of these segments is a different colony. So okay. this was created originally by Benjamin Franklin, and he was basically kind of saying, because these 13 colonies are separate, they are going to have to join together in order to fight the greatest army in the world. That's a really cool cover. Thank you. I, that was a photograph I snapped when I was in Tap in New York. Um, one of the original locations for where they held John Andre, who was the espionage leader for the British, um, before he was executed, they held him in a place in Tap in New York, which is on the western side of the Hudson River, just south of uh, West Point. And they were holding him there. And um, it's also a location where I believe Alexander Hamilton stayed for a while. And I snapped that photo of that flag outside the building. And then I turned it into black and white. And then I asked a college student from the University of Alabama to help with adding the smoke that I wanted on it and the caption and the wording and everything. And then on the back cover, this is a photo that I snapped with a flag on a fence and I placed that flag on the fence and snapped the photo uh, when I was in Setauk at Long Island. So all the covers that I have are, co are photos that I have shot the cover for. This particular one, Hit Zero, is actually taken on a beach in Alabama. And this is my daughter. She is doing the, the heel stretch here with her leg in the air uh, and then her cheer shoes and everything are in the sand. Uh, for the cover of Hit Zero, I snapped that photo at six in the morning at sunrise for <laughs> all the, and you can see some of my covers behind me, but these were all taken, like this was, let's see, this one was taken at a lake in Tuscaloosa, which is where the University of Alabama is. This is actually just me looking down at my, I was on literally a sidewalk in Tuscaloosa and that's just kind of me. You can see that not the greatest cover. But this one was taken in front of a fireplace. This is my Blood Runs Crimson. In order to create this look like there's blood in this, it is Neo drink flavoring that you drop into water. And so I had... <laughs> You're so creative with my these My husband pictures. was holding that, squeezing it, and it was dropping in as I was snapping the picture. That's how I got that. That's really cool. <laughs> so for my latest book, it is, it's not going to be a photo um, that I've taken myself, although I do enjoy taking them and using them because they have something to do with the story. But I have a couple of girls, college students that have worked on uh, that cover and it's not out yet. So we're still kind of tweaking that. I love how that you're so creative with the photography as well. You know, like it's um, really fun to be able to use those pictures and you know, they look very professional as well. You wouldn't guess that you were the photographer behind them. So I think you've done a very good job. Thank you. What have been some of your biggest challenges in your journey so far? Oh, I think sometimes you feel challenged because no one knows your book exists. 
So I think that you can feel like, well, how am I going to get it out there for people to read? And if my audience is a young audience, how am I going to get it? How am I going to get it out there? So I think that can be challenging. I think that you have to kind of reach out to your community, to your book clubs. I put a lot of my books in little library book boxes and I put signed copies in there. So when I'm traveling, even on vacation in places like when I was in Montauk on Long Island, I put one of my books in a little library. When I was on uh, St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia on vacation one year, I put one of my books or two of my books in a little library book box. And then I have um, our book club, one of the book clubs that I actually helped found and facilitate still today. We actually donated two little library book boxes to the community and I maintain those and, and help straighten them and, and put new books in, in organize. And so I always put my books in there and I donate to the library too. I donate to the local library. So I try my best to, to use social media. Um, I've got two Instagram pages, which is the talking book Atlanta podcast. And then my personal one, which is the word always, and then dot letter in dot style, which is my personal account, which I, you know, occasionally will advertise my books on too. And then my Facebook page, Perry Patterson author and a TikTok page. So I do, you know, all the social media things and I try to reach out to like local magazines. I'll be featured in um, a local magazine in Milton, Georgia in the next couple of months for an author spotlight. And then being in the local bookstores, even with my podcast where I'm interviewing other authors, I started the podcast almost two years ago. I want to say it was two, it'll be two years in January. And I kind of started it as Um, an indie author platform just to kind of feature indie authors. And occasionally I do interview New York Times bestsellers and USA Today bestselling authors. I've interviewed B.B. Easton. I've interviewed Patty Callahan Henry and Karen White and Donna Willenick. So some of those are USA Today, New York Times bestsellers. But I've also used the podcast to highlight a few nonprofit organizations. Uh, When I was in Italy over Christmas in Rome, I happened to stumble across a cat sanctuary where they are saving and rescuing cats throughout the city of Rome. And it's been around for almost a hundred years. And I was fascinated with it. And so literally I walked in and we were just, you know, learning about the cats and learning about where they live in the the area of the city of Rome where they live and um, what this organization does. And I just happened to say, is it possible for me to do an interview with you? And there was um, an expat from America there and she spoke wonderful. Obviously, she spoke English. She's from America originally, but she she lives in Rome now and she um, has lived in Rome for six years. And so she did the interview with me. And then I've also interviewed a marine biologist from the Sea Turtle Center. The Sea Turtle Center is located on Jekyll Island in Georgia. And then I recently interviewed the director, executive director for Jesse's House, which is a home, I'm home in Georgia, where they rescue girls that have had to be removed from situations of abuse, neglect, or possibly they've been trafficked. And they provide them with a safe, undisclosed living a home, a room of their own. Um, some of these girls have never had their own, not even a bed before. They provide medical care, dental care, and therapy, and then allow them, you know, to be able to finish high school and maybe even attend college. So it's right here in my area, and it's one of the organizations that I am currently working on a fundraising fundraiser for. It's called Harvesting Hope for Jesse's House. 
and it will take place on October 14th at a local winery called Stony Jays right here in our, our hometown, our, my town um, in, in Georgia. So we're excited about that Harvesting Hope on October 14th for sure. So I've been very busy getting ready for that. Sounds very busy, but it sounds like really wonderful causes that you've managed mm-hmm. to, you know, um, become, uh, be a part of and also uh, do interviews for, which is always really helpful, you know, for spreading the word yeah, about what I, you're doing. I, Right. And I want to, you know, make, just help people find, you know, other interesting nonprofits and things that they might not have, you know, heard about and, you know, just kind of bring something different to the table, you know, with the podcast, just every once in a while, just do something like a pop-up and something interesting and just, oh, by the way, just (laughs) wanted to let you know about this. (laughs) Um, so just in the interest of time, uh, I was just wondering if there's anything else you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet. I think the only thing is I have a new book coming out and that it, that's the one that's dedicated to Judy Bloom. I'm hoping to mail her a copy to her bookstore in, um, Amazing. in, yeah, she lives in the Keys in Key West, Florida, and she has a bookstore there and it's called the Tulip Tea, 24 Hours in NYC. It's got a nod to um, feminism and and girl bosses. And one of the things that I do with all my books, I like to send book packages to people that I think will enjoy them or want to promote books and my books and maybe tag me in a photo when they get the book. And I make these, I, well, I have these little candles made and basically it says like, this one is the one for all the Crimson Roses and it says, Smells like flamboyant friends, flower walls, rock star boyfriends, rooftop bars, doing the right thing when it matters most, and knowing flowers fade, but legends never die. So that's the candle for my book, All the Crimson Roses. And then this one is for Leader of Liberty. And I kind of tell the company that makes them, they're out in Oregon, I tell them a little bit about what I want it to smell like. And then I give them the the words for the the label. And so Leader of Liberty says it smells like heroes, glory, patriotism, and the pursuit of happiness. I love these candles. That's such so a when good I idea. do like yeah, when I do like book packages and book mail for people, I always try to pack the candle and a couple of bookmarks and a signed copy and you know, those kinds of things in with the package and send them off, hoping that people will then, you know, show their book mail, tag me, and then other people might get interested in seeing like, oh, I think I might want to read that. (laughs) So for my new book coming out, the candle says it smells like girl bosses, the era's tour, tulips, peonies, and romantic moments, I think. It sounds like so much fun coming up with the the little blurbs on the candles. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and all of my books usually have a tagline like my blood runs crimson's tagline is just because you can doesn't mean you should kind of goes along with the story there and then for this latest one I think I came up with a tagline of when you least expect it fate steps in oh that's a good one (laughs) that's really cute I like it so if people want to get in touch with you or purchase any of your books or any of your merchandise and your candles and bookmarks and things how would they go about doing that 
My website is www.perrypatterson.com, perrypatterson.com, so they can message me on my website. Um, They can also buy a couple of my books from the website. It'll take them to the Amazon link. And you can certainly reach out to me through my Instagram account. My personal one is always the word always dot letter n dot style, always dot n dot style and at the talking book Atlanta. So um, you can reach me from through those Instagram accounts and direct message me. And you can also reach me directly through email. And again, that's Perry with a P, P-E-R-R-I-E, Tuck, T-U-C-K, at Mac, M-A-C.com. So it's a little bit different from my author pen name is based on my mother's maiden name. And my email is a little different, but my mother named me after her father. And so I changed the spelling to an I-E and had it legally changed um, from a Y to an I-E when I was about 24. But um yeah, his name was William Perry Patterson. And so when I decided to start writing novels, I'm like, you know, I'm going to use my mother's maiden name and I'll Perry Patterson. That's who she named me for. It's perfect. And the double P yeah. as well. I love it. Yes. And then, of course, there's a Facebook page, Perry Patterson author. So Perfect. Uh, so thank you very much, Perry, for coming on the show. Uh, I've really enjoyed hearing all about how you got started writing. And what was it 2017 ish? I think you said. Um, and it seems like you've come a really long way since then. So, you know, thank you for sharing your journey with us. And we really appreciated having you on the show. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And I hope to have you guys on soon, maybe next spring. And you guys have a great weekend. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to be on an author spotlight like Perry has just done, you can apply by going to lindersoncreations.com. Hover your mouse over the podcast tab in the main menu and you will find a drop down to be featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, we have another one of our craft episodes. So uh, check in again in two weeks to listen to that. And if you'd like to know more about us and our writing projects, you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or contact us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle Lindison Creations. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts um, or subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Tell your friends about us and we'll be back in two weeks. Happy writing, everyone. Happy writing, everyone.